We are studying in these uh, Sunday morning services for about five weeks. We're studying a book of the Bible called Habakkuk. And uh, Habakkuk was a prophet. And if you don't know where the book of Habakkuk is, you go to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and you move back about four or five books and you'll find Habakkuk. He was a prophet in the southern uh, territory of Judah as um, part of Israel and um, this book is about a man, a prophet, that comes to God and says, God, <laughs> the world is in such a mess. The world that I'm looking at is in such a mess. I went um, to get my car looked at yesterday at the body shop, and the guy there is not a Christian, but um, he's kinda, I kind of half know him, know him a little bit. And his opening gambit was, the world's in a mess, isn't it? The world's in a mess. Habakkuk looks at his world. He looks at the society that he lives in, Judah. And he says, God, we're in a mess. Society's in a mess. Uh, the people of Judah, this your people. Lord, there is injustice. There is, um, there is violence. There is conflict. There is economic difficulty. God, where are you? What are you doing in this day? What, are, what is happening to us? And, uh, and Habakkuk is slightly different in that he is um, he's speaking to God rather than speaking to the people as a prophet. He's complaining to God. And he's asking some questions of God, which we've said in the last couple of weeks as we've thought about this book, we all do during our lives as Christ followers. There's always times where we perhaps ask God, God, where are you? God, why do you seem to be silent? Uh, how long, God, is a question that goes right through the Bible, right through the Psalms, right to the Revelation. How long, God, is this going to last? Why, God, is this happening? And so Habakkuk looks internally at society and, uh, and then he looks externally because God answers him and uh, Habakkuk sees around him the threat of um, external forces, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who were the ascending power at the time, the superpower that was on the rise, and God says, I'm going to raise up Habakkuk. I'm going to raise up the Babylonian empire. And they're going to come and they are going to slap you off to exile. They're going to, and my judgment is going to come on some of this injustice and the perversions that you're seeing around you. It's going to come in the form of the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is not happy with that answer. And he says, God, is that, is that the best you've got? How can you use the pagans? How can you use someone like the Babylonians to bring judgment on your own people? How can you do that, God? And, but that's what God said he would do, and that's what God did. And the Babylonians came in 605 BC, and they took the Judeans, the Israelites, and they took them off into exile. And we traced, we then traced down through history how God has a plan of salvation, even when it seems that his judgment is coming. And... Uh, his judgment did come, but he always had a plan of salvation. And he said, look, Habakkuk, look and wait and see and write down this vision because I'm going to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe even if it were told you. I have a plan, Habakkuk. I have a plan of salvation. And out of judgment and out of justice will come salvation and redemption. And ultimately, it would come in the form of Jesus Christ uh, who would come and save his people. But this morning, what we're looking at in Habakkuk chapter 2 is we're looking at God's answer 
And, and in, in the meantime, we're looking at what God says he's going to do with the Babylonians, these people that are going to come and they're not good people, they're guilty people. If you remember last time we talked about the Babylonians, they are marauders, they are people that are abusing power. So we'll read, we'll read the verses from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5 through to 20, just to give you a picture of what God says is going to happen to the Babylonians themselves. Um, indeed, wine betrays him. This is verse 5, and him is the Babylonian in the singular. See verse 4 if we pick it up there. He is puffed up. His desires are not upright. This is the Babylonian. But the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave. And like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and he takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. This is speaking to Babylon. Because you have plundered many nations... The peoples who are left will plunder you, for you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you, for you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? Is it covered with gold and silver? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The first thing I, I want to think about four things. So I, I want to think about the predicament that we face. The predicament that we face. Then I want to look at the punishment that we deserve. Then I want to look at the provision that God's, God makes and the promise that we hold on to. But the predicament that we face Habakkuk is um, looking at society, and as we read through 1 and 2, we see a list of things that are going on. We see violence, we see conflict, we see wrong, we see um, um, strife abounding, we see 
financial impropriety as we read through chapter 2 and God says, as, as you are plundering others, you will be plundered as you're misusing your wealth, then it will come back on you. Vengeance is coming your way, Babylonians. But there's all, the, all these kind of ills of society that are listed that Habakkuk is looking at. And as I think as we look at society today, and as we look at the things that may be going wrong, the conflicts that are in place, the economic difficulties and some of the challenges we face, the question that we often ask is who is to blame? Who is to blame for the mess that we are in? Who is to blame when things don't work in our society? Who is to blame? And we have a way of kind of, depending on which side of the spectrum we're on, or which newspaper we read, we have a way of finding someone to blame. And it, it, has, uh, it has struck me as I have scanned the newspapers analyzing various events of our day that you get a very an a different analysis of who is to blame depending on which newspaper you read. So if you read the Guardian newspaper, which is over to the left, and if you watch the BBC, you'll get a very different analysis of who is to blame than you will if you read the Telegraph or the Daily Mail, which is over on the right. Or if you watch GB News and get their angle on it. If you're in America, you get a very different angle if you watch CNN or MSNBC or if you watch Fox News. They all blame different people. And if they're on the left, they blame the right. And if they're on the right, they blame the left. And it's the same with the political parties as well. And so you have the front bench of the Labour Party saying that those Tory scum, to use their words, they are to blame. They are to blame for the ills of society. And then you've got those on the other side of the house who say it's those rotten socialists and those liberals, they're to blame for the ills of society. And, and this merry-go-round, it goes on and on and on. Have you noticed? <laughs> and depending on which newspaper you read, you'll get a different analysis of who's to blame. Who is to blame for what is going on? Why are we in such a mess? And Habakkuk, he looks at all of these evils, but he ultimately, he bookends, he bookends this section of, of, uh, of, of his book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2, with two kind of sources of the ultimate problem of what is wrong with society and what is wrong with us and the predicament that we face. We can blame all kinds of people. We can blame all kinds of political parties. We can blame other people, but the problems that we face, the predicament that we have is summarized in a couple of verses that goes to the very heart of our issues, our predicament. In chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, see, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant, and he is never at rest. He is puffed up, he is arrogant, and he is never at rest. We see kind of the first bookend here is the bookend of, of pride and arrogance. Arrogant and never at rest. The problem, the source of pride. 
Lewis Smead wrote this. He says, pride in the religious sense is the arrogant refusal to let God be God. It is to grab God's status for oneself. In the vivid language of the Bible, pride is puffing yourself up in God's face. Verse 4, he is puffed up. Pride is puffing yourself up in God's face. Pride is turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in the garden and wishing instead to be the creator. Independent, reliant on one's own resources. Never does pride want to pray for strength or ask for grace or plead for mercy or give thanks to God. Pride is the grand illusion, the fantasies of the fantasy of fantasies, the cosmic put on. The fantasy that we can make it as little gods leaves us empty at the center. Pride is at the source of our difficulties. And the pursuit of glory, that's what pride ultimately is. It's the pursuit of glory. If you read an article on the likes of Madonna in Vanity Fair magazine, she writes and says things like, I have always felt very normal, but what I've done throughout my life and my career is I've always tried to go to a next level of fame. I've always tried to reach that next level of fame, that next level of glory. Or Chris Everett, if you remember her, the tennis player, she said, I felt so normal, but I only really, really felt beautiful. I only really felt worthwhile when I was winning, when I had the glory of winning at tennis. And always pursued that, always pursued the glory, always pursued the next level. There's an episode of uh, Frasier, a sitcom we like to watch, and, and they, go to this, um, they go to this health club, this health spa, and they do everything they can to get into this elusive health spa that's only for invited guests. You have to have a special ticket to go to this special health spa. And they get in there and they realize that they're in and we're, we're in. We've got tickets for this elusive health spa. Nobody else can get in, but we are in. And then when they get in, they realize that there's a bronze door that you can get in but you need another ticket for that. And then somehow they manage to get through to the bronze door and they say, we've arrived, we've arrived. We're through the bronze door in the elusive spa. And then they realize to their dismay, there's a silver door. And then they have to get through the silver and there's a platinum door. And they, on and on it goes, the pursuit, the pursuit of glory. And whether it is, whether it is Madonna or whether it is Chris Everett, or whether it is uh, a television star, it is this pursuit of the next level. But it's elusive, this glory that people look for in pride and arrogance and going it alone without God. It's elusive. It slips through your fingers. We look for beauty. We look for youth. And you see then that it's elusive. It doesn't last. And so whether it's Simon Cowell or whether it's Madonna herself or whatever, they start doing things to their faces and they start having operations and they start cutting themselves and, and taking surgery to try and stay youthful, to try and stay beautiful, to try and stay famous. And it's elusive, this pursuit of glory, this pursuit of pride. So pride is, is this pursuit of glory is the one end, the bookend that... Um, Habakkuk 
sees as the predicament that we face. But at the other end, uh, the other bookend that summarizes all of the ills at the core of society that we look at, it's found uh, later in chapter, in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. It's, it's the problem of idolatry, of what value is an idol since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies. For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Idolatry, God replacement, images. Images that teach lies is what it says here. There's a book by an author called Greg Beale, and it's called uh, We Become Who We Worship. And what Greg Beale does, he looks at a couple of passages in the book of Romans, and he says that ultimately... We become like the image that we worship. And the word for image in the Greek is ikonos, from which we get the word icon, an image or a likeness. An image that lies is what Habakkuk says, a creation of our own making, something that replaces God, an ikonos. And ultimately, Greg Beale says, we worship something and we become what we worship. We become like what we worship. So if you read in uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, you find there this word ikonos, this word image, this word idol or likeness. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They took the glory of God and they replaced it for, the like, for likenesses, images, iconos, icons. They took what was God and they replaced it and they became like what they worshipped. They became foolish and futile. But there's another passage in Romans that says that we can worship something very different and become someone very different. It's the same word, ikonos, icon, image, likeness, in chapter 8, verse 29 of Romans. And it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So then, when we worship Jesus, when we worship God, we become like who we worship. We become conformed to the likeness of his son. It's either way, we're going to worship something, some likeness. And, and the problem, the predicament that we face as society and as individuals is when we replace God with self, the creator with the created. We elevate something that is good, but we elevate it to the ultimate to something that it is not meant to be. We take beauty and we make an idol of it. We take youth and we make an idol of it. We take family and we make an idol of it. We take food and we make an idol of it. And it becomes a likeness and it, and it distorts our lives. And it's the predicament that we face. The bookends of this passage in Habakkuk is at one end, it's this pride, it's this pursuit of glory that is only God's glory and that we can never ultimately find. And it's, and it's this replacement of God with icons, with iconos. I've, I read a really interesting piece in the 
in the Times this weekend about this whole episode with Philip Schofield that's been in the news for the last three weeks. The disgraced television presenter who's fallen from grace, been sacked from his role on this morning and has been absolutely vilified. And there's an interesting piece in the Times about this by Matthew Saeed. And he, he said this. He said, um, the title was, When Celebrity Culture is Exposed as the Sham It Is, We Should Applaud. Philip Schofield's downfall pulls back the curtain on an industry that is little more than a mass illusion. A mass illusion. Think of megawatt smile TV presenters, the royal family, icons such as David Beckham. These stars are in a sense invented, writes Matthew Said. Millions of people believe, I mean really believe, that these carefully airbrushed public images are synonymous with who these people are in real life. It is a kind of vast hallucination. The grotesque and infantilizing illusion of celebrity culture. I would suggest, writes Saeed in this weekend's Times, that celebrity culture is the 21st century's new religion. Icons such as David Beckham, icons such as the royal family, such as Philip Schofield, images and illusions, celebrity culture, influencers that can sell goods, the Kardashians that are worth millions, the images that are created, images replacing God, replacing who God is with created beings that were never meant to take on that image. They have taken God, the glory of God, Romans says, and they have replaced it with the likeness of man, with idols, <laughs> pop idols and celebrity idols and wealthy idols and people that are lifted up and elevated to a position that they were never meant to hold and that they cannot sustain because it is a facade. It is an illusion. It is a hallucination. And it is idolatry, and we all suffer from it. Whenever we take God and the glory of God and we put something else in that place that was never meant to be there. And so that's the predicament that we face. And ultimately, who is to blame <laughs> with the ills of society, with the economic problems we face, with the, with the problems of the political issues that we face, with the things that don't seem to work. Who is to blame? Well, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Nobel Prize-winning Russian author who lifted um, and highlighted kind of the, the problems that there were, the crushing daily brutality of life in the Soviet Union, who wrote One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. He wrote the fact that the line between good and evil runs not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. Right through every human heart. There is pride and there is idolatry in every human heart, in every 
culture. If it's, a, if it's a conservative culture, there will be idols and there will be pride in their conservative cultural values. And if it's a liberal culture, there will be pride and there will be elevation of idols. But the problem is in the human heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. This is the predicament that we face. This is what Habakkuk looks at. When he looks at society and he looks at the bookends of pride and idolatry, it's the same problems that we face today. Maybe with different people and different names and different societal ills, but it's the same predicament. Which brings us, secondly, to the punishment that we deserve. Uh, there's a question that Habakkuk is asking in 1 verse 2 and in 2 verse 6. How long must this go on, God? How long must we put up with this? And in answer, what God does is God speaks out five woes. <laughs> the woes of God. <laughs> and you find it in uh, Habakkuk 2, 6, 9, 12, 15, 19. You will read all of these woes that God speaks out um, about these Babylonians. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, who establishes a, a town by crime. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor and pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so he can gaze on their nakedness. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Woe. It's the judgment of God. It's the punishment that is coming on those that turn away from God or that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And it reminds me, it reminds me of the woes in Revelation. It reminds me of Revelation 18 when we looked at, again, the downfall of Babylon that was predicted, same name, same representation, but in the final book of the Bible, Rome, uh, Revelation 18, Woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come, Revelation 18. Woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. The punishment we deserve. Babylon, as we said throughout our study of Revelation and here, it represents any city, any construct, any culture, any cre create creature that sets itself up against God and his people. And the punishment of God that is deserved, that is coming towards those that have turned away from God, that is coming to everyone. There's another image that is used here, that is used both here and throughout the Bible and in Revelation it's an image that uh, is in verse 16 of chapter 2. And you will be filled with shame instead of glory. This is still speaking to Babylon. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. You're going after glory, but you will be filled with shame. Now it's your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you. The cup of God's right hand, the cup of God's wrath, is coming to you, Babylonians. The cup of God's wrath is coming to you. And again, it's an image that is found throughout Revelation. If you remember in, in Revelation 
14 verse 10, it speaks of the cup of God's wrath being filled. It speaks of the grapes of God's wrath being trampled. The wine of God's wrath being drunk. And and this kind of culmination of punishment and judgment that is coming towards the people that have turned against God. Now, we don't like the word judgment, but we do like the word justice. And the two come hand in hand. You can't have justice without judgment. And God speaks out judgment against these people, and he speaks out these woes like we hear echoed in Revelation, and the promise is that they will drink of the very cup of wrath. It's coming to you as well. You've made other people drink it. It's coming round to you, this cup in the right hand of God. The punishment that we deserve. And this is what the Bible says, is that we, all of us deserve this punishment of God because all of us ultimately have pride and idolatry in our lives. All of us have replaced God with our own means. I was at a funeral recently. We sang the old classic, I Did It My Way. (laughs) I always think that's such a a sad song to sing at a funeral. (laughs) I did it my way. But it's the song of (laughs) of this age. I did it my way. I led my life. I'm the master of my own destiny. But we are not ultimately that. And the punishment that we deserve is coming to us, the cup of God's wrath, the woes that are spoken out, the judgment that that comes against wrongdoing and brokenness. But God doesn't leave us there and God doesn't leave Habakkuk there and God makes a provision, the provision that God makes. There's a theme that runs through the Bible which is an amazing theme, is, is that God has got a plan that God has got a plan to take care of the predicament that we find ourselves in of pride and idolatry and turning away from God. There's a plan that God has. There is a punishment that is deserved, but there is a provision that God makes, and it's echoed right through the Bible. We see it, for example, in the story of Abraham and Isaac, as Abraham takes Isaac and has this thought in his head and believes he's hearing God saying that he's got to sacrifice his son, which, of course, he doesn't. But, but Isaac turns to his dad in Genesis 22, Abraham, and he says, Dad, we've got fire but, and we've got wood, but where is the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says to his son, God will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, which of course was an echo, an echo of God's provision of a lamb that would be sacrificed, that was shown then in, in the Passover uh, for the Israelites and, and was shown in the provision of a lamb to protect them from the judgment and the punishment of God. But ultimately, it would come with the provision of the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is what Jesus is called. God will provide a lamb. The provision that God makes. And in chapter 2 of verse 16 of Habakkuk, we, we hear this that the cup is coming to you. The cup is coming to you out of the right hand of God. And then we see this echo of the fact of the coming of the cup of God's wrath and God's provision for an alternative. And, and Jesus 
finding himself in the Garden of Gethsemane and looking at the impending cup of God's wrath that he knows is coming towards him, which is the punishment for all of the sins of the world for your wrongdoing and mine. And Jesus looks and sweats blood and and says, God, if there's any way that this cup can pass by me, if there's another way, but there isn't another way. And the cup of wrath that belongs to us, the punishment that we deserve, God makes a provision and the cup of wrath is taken by Jesus and it's drunk and it's emptied. And the cup of God's wrath is emptied by Christ on the cross. And not only that, but, but what, what Habakkuk is saying is in verse 16, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. You drink the cup. You'll be filled with shame instead of glory. And this is ultimately what happens to us is that we're chasing the glory, but ultimately we are filled with shame. Philip Schofield said this week, he said, I am broken and I am ashamed. He could speak for the whole of mankind with those words. I am broken and I am ashamed. And shame comes on every one of us. And yet, we pursue glory. But, but ultimately, the Bible says, the punishment of God is that instead of glory, you'll get shame. And Philip Schofield asked the question then, what do these people want of me? Do they want me to die? Do they want me to die for what I've done? And ultimately, there is one who wants us to die for what we have done. He has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And we are ashamed and we are broken. And that is our predicament. But the provision that God has made is that Jesus took that cup which was coming towards us and that shame. And we hear and read in Hebrews that Jesus went to the cross scorning its shame for the joy that was set before him. He took the shame (laughs) that was my shame and your shame where you were ashamed and you were broken, he went to the cross and he scorned its shame and he took the shame on himself. And he had the glory. Philippians 2 tells us he had the glory. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus had all of the glory and he emptied himself of the glory. And he took upon himself the shame of the cross. He lowered himself even to death on a cross. What do you want of me? Do you want me to die? And Jesus said, I will die. I will die for you. I will take your shame. I will take it on myself. I will scorn it on the cross. And I will give you my glory. And I will take your shame. And God made a provision. And the cup of wrath, which we should have drunk, was drunk by Jesus. And he said, here, I have another cup for you instead. This is the cup of my blood, which is poured out for you, which we have taken this morning and remembered the fact that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so we could drink the cup of his mercy and his grace. 
and we could drink the cup of his forgiveness. This is my body, which is broken for you. I am broken and I am ashamed. We are all broken and we are all ashamed. And Jesus said, this is my body. I'm going to be broken for you. And I will take your shame for you. And I will take the punishment for you. And I will die for you. And this is the provision that God makes for every one of us. This is what answers the predicament that we find ourselves of idolatry and God replacement and substitution. It replaces the icons, the empty imagery of everything that leaves us restless and empty. It is the provision that God makes through Christ. And we sang a line in a song this morning, and I wrote it down. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You're the only one who can. You turn shame into glory. And that's what Jesus has done for us, for every one of us who accept his forgiveness and his grace. And all of this culminates as we look at this chapter of Habakkuk in the promise that we hold on to. There's two promises, there's two shafts of light that shine through Habakkuk 2 that just seem to leap out of the page out of all of the darkness and the woes and the judgment and the punishment All of a sudden, they don't almost seem to fit there, but there's just a moment of hope. And the first is in in chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on the throne. (laughs) The Lord is in charge. God is sovereign. And as Habakkuk looks at the ills of his society and as he looks at the breakdown of of Judah and he looks at them being dragged off into exile and as he stands and he watches and he waits for God, the promise of God comes that God is still on the throne, that God is still in his holy temple. It's the promise that we heard all the way through Revelation. You may be suffering now. You may be going through troubled times. You may not understand society. You may not understand your own heart. But God is on the throne and God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. God is still in control. And it's a shaft of light that comes to Habakkuk, the sovereignty of God. And the other shaft of light, the other promise of God is the glory of God. Chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The reason we are empty and restless, the reason that our stars fall before our eyes, is that we are ultimately hungry for glory and beauty. But the hunger that we feel and know is the hunger for God's glory and the hunger for God's beauty. And the promise comes that earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover 
the sea. You will see it with your own eyes. You will see the glory of God everywhere, the beauty of God. You will breathe it in. You will live in it. It will be a new heaven and a new earth. We saw that glory in Revelation. We saw the sparkling diamonds and the jewelry and the descriptions of heaven and God on his throne and the angels worshipping. We saw the glory of God. And, and the word comes to Habakkuk in the middle of all this darkness. In the emptiness she feels, you pursue the glory in the wrong places, that God's glory will ultimately fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And instead of the shame that is promised in verse 16, shame instead of glory, God promises us in verse 14, glory instead of shame. Glory instead of shame. So this is the predicament that we all face. We face the predicament of pride, arrogance, restlessness of our hearts, the pursuit of glory that is ultimately an empty icon, an image, a replacement of God that will fade away. We face the same idolatry that has come down through the ages, the same icons. Our icons may be different, but they're still God replacements, and it's still in a hallucination. We deserve ultimately the woes that were coming down the line to the Babylonians. I listened to Dale Ralph Davis saying as two, as a young boy, he and his friend, they took this young girl that they were friends with and he said, we took her and we grabbed her and I grabbed her feet and my other friend, he grabbed her hands and we swung her and he said, we swung her and we swung her and then we threw her in the thorn bushes and she cried, and she bled, and she ran home. He said, why did we do this? He said, we did it because we wanted to. We did it because we thought it was fun. We did it, he said, because we are the Babylonians. We all of us have that evil propensity in our heart, that bias towards sinfulness, that bias towards doing it our own way, and we all deserve the punishment that is heading our way, the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath, we all deserve those woes, but, but Jesus has provided another way. He's taken that wrath upon himself. He's drank that cup for us. He's offered us another cup. He's taken our shame upon himself. He hasn't scorned it at the cross. He's offered us his glory. He makes the ultimate provision for us, and he promises us his salvation and his glory, the sovereignty of God. He is on the throne and the glory of God, which will cover the earth what to do with all of this. There's a line in uh, one of uh, Jim Collins' books, Good to Great, and he says, if you're going to be a good to great company, you have to confront the brutal facts, but you need to maintain a vital sense of optimism. And if we are to deal with these truths, we must confront the brutal facts that we are all in the same boat that we are all broken and we are all ashamed, that we are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. But we are to maintain a vital sense of optimism, a vital sense of hope that God has made a provision for every one of us. We need to acknowledge our need of a savior. We need to call on the grace and the salvation of God. It is our only hope. We need to receive his grace 
and his glory instead of our shame. And we need to make sure that we choose the right cup. Because one of those cups is coming your way. You can choose the cup of God's wrath if you turn from him and don't follow him as your savior. And the punishment for sin will come upon you. Or you can choose the cup of his salvation which is offered in its place. But you must choose one or the other. And you can worship him because we become who we worship. We have to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus, not distorted into the likeness of man-made images that will forever fail us. So let's give our lives wholly to him and worship him for whose glory we were created. The whole story starts, does it not, in Genesis with the nakedness and the exposure. There's a passage in Habakkuk 2 that says you will be exposed. Your shame will be exposed. And there's a passage in Genesis where Adam and Eve turn against God and they hide themselves because they're ashamed. Lord, we were afraid and we hid. And God covered them with fig leaves. But ultimately, God covers our nakedness and our shame with the fig leaves of his forgiveness and his salvation. Let's pray. I want to ask you this morning to make Jesus Lord of your life. I want you to ask you to put him in charge, to accept his salvation, his forgiveness. He is the only one that can turn your shame into glory. He's the only one who can. So why don't we all pray these words quietly in our hearts? Dear Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I am broken and I am ashamed. Please provide for me your salvation. I thank you, Jesus, that you took my shame and my brokenness on the cross and you gave me your glory and your righteousness. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me and please make me whole. And I want to spend my life in worship of you. And I want to be conformed to the likeness of you. Lord, forgive us. Lord, cleanse us. And Lord, make us whole. Thank you for the cup that you drank so that we would not have to. And thank you for the cup that you gave us in its place. And Lord, wherever we're pursuing an image, an icon, an idol, 
in our lives where we have made something that is good into an ultimate, into a God. Expose those things in our hearts and help us truly to worship you and to put you first and center. Continue to transform us, we pray. We thank you for your mighty salvation, your awesome love, and your relentless grace. In Jesus' name, amen.